We are going to take you on an amazing journey while you will, where you will learn how to come home and how to become a partner to life. So healing the centuries-old wound of separation is not an easy thing, but it can be achieved in seconds. First comes understanding, and then the breaking of old habit patterns. Understanding is an inside job. Breaking patterns takes community. I'll be sharing my story and the resources that got me here, both from science, indigenous wisdom, and systems thinking. I'm committed to creating an entire generation of regenerative leaders, and you may be one. You are welcome to DM me at any time. If you want to go deeper, then joining the Coming Home Project community as you learn to live regeneratively would be a good thing. The shift is as easy as shifting from living on the planet to living with the planet. Easy to say and much harder to do. But life loves life. So there's nothing to fear, just old thought patterns and habits to change. So join me as we explore the wonderful, amazing biology of life and how that changes everything. Let's get started. Welcome to Whoopi Making Changes. Everything is in motion. Nothing is staying the same or just sitting there. Everything is engaging with the changes that are going on around us, except for possibly humans. But most everything is really quite busy. Evolution actually happens in real time. It's not something in the past or something in the future. It's happening right now. This is kind of goes against what Darwin thought, but it is new science. We are discovering some new things, which I'm going to share with you today. Everything is alive. The earth is alive. That means that living things are constantly engaging with their environment and with each other. They learn stuff and they make the appropriate changes. And that's what evolution is all about, actually. So we are seeing huge changes in plants, in animals, and yes, even in people. So plants, I think you're probably familiar with this. If you're a gardener, you certainly are. You know that they've changed the zones a few years back, and I'll bet they're going to do it again pretty soon also because the temperature has changed. So you can now grow plants where you couldn't grow them before. And some of the plants you used to love don't work so well. So plants are changing their flowering time. And this is dicey because there's often a symbiotic relationship between plants and insects in particular. And hummingbirds, some birds that use nectar do that kind of um, interaction with plants. So Changing your flower time really impacts other things. And we're seeing some of those changes where there's not flowers out for the bees when they come out um, because they haven't quite synced their time to those changes. And sometimes the flowers are done by the time certain animals or insects arrive uh, because they're flowering earlier. They are managing heat and cold changes. And this really talks about the difference between seasons. 
because plants act differently in the different seasons. And some of those actions are starting to change. So where sap might go slower in the winter, it's not slowing down as much. Um, and maybe it's speeding up in the summer or taking longer to get fast. So there's all these really interesting changes, the amount of leaf that come out um, earlier now uh, in some places, that kind of thing. And plants are actually moving, um, those that can. This is harder on trees, of course, but the those plants that can move are definitely shifting to warmer or cooler climes, sorry, cooler climes. They're moving north because the planet's heating up. Lizards are so interesting. Oh my goodness. The changes that lizards are undergoing is awesome. So lizards on islands, and I'm speaking of a particular island, and I cannot tell you the name of it. I'm sorry, I don't know if he even mentioned it. If he did, it just went right by me. Um, in this particular island, there were some people who were doing research on lizards. And like finches, they measure length of legs, length of nails, that kind of stuff. And so they were on this island doing that, and they had to leave because a hurricane was coming. And so two hurricanes hit, one right after the other. So it took them about a year to come back to see what's happened to the island. And what they discovered is that the lizards had changed. They had grown longer legs and longer claws so they could hang on better in the huge winds. They actually showed uh, a picture of a lizard hanging onto a pole in an, uh, an airstream that they had artificially created. And you could see how it had figured out to stay on one side to really grasp around and how it was able to manage pretty strong winds, which it couldn't have just a couple of years ago. But the Galapagos lizards, now there's a story that sounds so fantastic. It is just imaginable. Because of the changes in the waves have gotten so intense and severe during one season, the lizards have learned to shrink and grow depending on the strength of waves. Now, this is a bone issue, folks. So this is not something that they took lightly. They are actually able to change how their bones work. They drop out certain segments so they shrink. And they can do it fairly fast. I mean, this is awesome. Think about what this means. We think animals have absolutely no brains. You know, they just run around and do stuff. And this is absolutely not true. And this is one of the things I think we can learn about this is the wisdom they have inside is old wisdom, just like us. They are biomes, just like we are. And they're listening to that old wisdom and they're able to do incredible things in a very short period of time. Sea lions, animals. So this is um, one of the things that is, well, these are these stories are just really amazing. So let's start with sea lions. Sea lions usually eat sardines, and of course, sardines are disappearing in the ocean. And there were, you know, like trillions of them. You could just fish all day for sardines, like cod. 
And you can't do that anymore because we've overfished. So since we've depleted what the sea lions normally eat, they have decided to eat tuna, which may not be something that makes us happy either. <laughs> and tuna are bigger fish, way bigger fish than sardines. So they have hate, they've had to change how they do that. And so now they hunt in packs, which before they were solitary hunters. So they have learned to cooperate and they herd the tuna into shallow waters and they make them shallower and shallower until they can catch them. And of course, one tuna is way bigger than a sardine. So it feeds more people, more lions. <laughs> this is new behavior. So they have learned to cooperate given the shift in their environment. The Galapagos finches are another story. Now the Galapagos finches and there's a wonderful book on this, which I highly recommend. They have been studying the Galapagos finches for over 50 years. I mean, people spend their whole life on this island measuring birds. So they know the lineage of every finch on that island. And they've been able to track how they have changed over time. So as the environment changes, they change their beaks. They change the length of their legs. They change their talons. They do all sorts of, and their diets, to try and find a niche where they're not competitive, where they're the only ones so that there's no competition. So contrary to this competition of the fittest, it's trying to get out of competition is really the strategy. But an interesting thing is happening on the Galapagos Islands and probably not for the better. This ability to be so malleable and to change so quickly and fast, which has stood them in very good stead for a long time, is now interfacing with humans who have started to live on the Galapagos Islands. And humans, as you might know, are very messy people. We do not clean up our garbage. So the Galapagos finches have learned to eat that garbage and they've discovered it doesn't matter what your beak size is. So they are not being as flexible as they used to be and they are intermarrying, shall we say? So the beats, beach, the beak sizes become more homogenous. This may not stand them in good stead going forward, but this is an example of how malleable our world is, how fast it can change, and to understand the kinds of pressures that make that change happen. The monkeys in Zanzibar are another really interesting example. We think they don't think. We think they're just active sacks of stuff. Not true. So the monkeys in Zanzibar eat leaves. And as people have enroached on their habitat, people plant things. And so the monkeys are acclimating to those new leaf forms. However, some of those leaf forms are not things that they have evolved to eat. And mango trees have cyanide in their leaves. So the monkeys eat those mango trees and get sick and die. So what they have done to counteract that is they have discovered charcoal pits in other parts of the city, town, landscape. <laughs> And they know where those charcoal pits are, even though they have to cross busy streets, which they would not normally not, not be involved with at all. 
but they cross these streets at great risk to their life because the tourists just and the people in cars are just not paying any attention to them. In order to get to the to the charcoal pits, and they eat charcoal. They eat charcoal because charcoal can absorb that cyanide. It keeps them healthy. How did they figure this out? How did they know to do this? We are not giving animals and insects and plants the credit we need to give for their chops and being able to live in a really challenging environment forever. This is what they have done their entire existence for billions of years, and which we have done for most of our existence, except for the past few thousand. We have lost that finesse that allows us to adjust to the environment. They are sharpening theirs. Now crickets, let's talk about crickets. Who would have thunk? In Hawaii, they have lots of crickets. And crickets, as you may know, rub their wings together in order to find a mate. Well, in Hawaii, there is an imported fly that came in with human traffic. And that fly has one of the best hearing sound locators on the planet. So it hones in on the cricket sound. And then it deposits its eggs in the male cricket. And those eggs hatch and eat the cricket from the inside out. Pretty gruesome. But all of a sudden, the crickets stopped chirping. So there was an agreement through the species that this isn't working. And this is how they're finding us. And we better do something about it. And so they stopped took about a year. And then they noticed there's still crickets. So what's happening? And they discovered in the third year that the crickets had changed their sound. They now sound like purring cats. Think about this, folks. This is a species-wide phenomenon. So not only are they thinking, they are talking amongst themselves, if we can use that phrase. They are certainly communicating amongst themselves in a way that everybody gets. That is awesome. That speaks to way more intelligence than we ever thought possible in something like a cricket. But we are seeing and recording these changes as we speak. So what does all this mean for the change we're involved in? First, the change is real. Okay, and they're not doing this to entertain themselves. They're doing this because they're being pushed to do that in order to better interact with their environment. So the environment is absolutely changing. So that's sort of end of that story. But also... Life changes much faster and more creatively than we ever thought possible. And that gives me personal hope for everything else on this planet. The planet is alive. 
the planet is changing and the planet will continue to be alive because life loves life. That's what life is doing. It is working hard to stay here. It is being creative and inventive and aggressive in staying here, in doing whatever it takes to thrive in whatever environment it finds. It also speaks to me to the fact that we're all biomes. I have a whole podcast on this, but I'm going to, just because this is where we are, do a little segue into our own biome. Our body is a biome. We are composed of 30,000 individual life forms that have no DNA connection to us at all. They are totally separate. They have trillions and trillions and trillions of themselves inside of us. They are living their life as best they can, making the best responses to the biome they're in, our body, that they can. And they've been doing this for millions of years. They are very old in their wisdom. If we learn to listen to that wisdom, to trust our bodies, perhaps we can be more creative in this change as well. My learning from this is that consciousness needs old wisdom. Old wisdom is very important because it's experiential. It's not just years, it's the experience those years bring. And the more practice they've had at making changes to the changing environment, the better off they get, the better they are. This is a duh, right? So life has experience in making these changes. If we wish to stay on this planet, we too need to engage in this kind of responsiveness to the environment we're in. That has not been our skill. Our skill has been getting out of, removing ourselves from these responses. And we've seen what that has done because in removing ourselves, we have limited and sometimes drastically the number of life forms that we need to engage with. We think that's a good thing and it's not, it's a bad thing. It diminishes the wisdom that we have to engage with. So we need to cherish old wisdom. And that means the bigger things have gotten, the older they are, and the more valuable they are to the planet and to us. So we need to learn to leave the bigger, older forms and use the younger, less experienced when we need things. But we ourselves, because we have separated ourselves from life on the planet in so many ways, I mean, we maintain our temperatures artificially, we grow food artificially, we really don't engage with the planet much. We have tried to take ourselves away and to make our own environment that doesn't respond to all these changes. 
And we're seeing what that's gotten us, which is the situation we're in. So obviously that's not the path we want to continue to take. We need to start to re-engage with the planet so that we can keep up. So the old wisdom in us has a say so we can keep up with the changes that are happening. And in so doing, we can begin to co-create what happens on the planet, not be a victim of it, but co-create it as everything else does. So what are we doing? Well, the stories that I've heard so far are not very huge. But what is interesting is that some people are actually changing their body temperature. So it used to be 98.6 was normal, and now it's 97. We are cooling our bodies to deal with the heat. That's pretty cool. Some people are working directly with the planet, really understanding how to work with what we have. And that's the subject of a whole other podcast and series of classes and stuff. But the working with the planet is really, I think, the critical thing at this point in time, because the the planet needs to cool if the life forms that we love, we want to keep. And it makes it much easier on us. And it, we don't do so well if it gets really, really hot. We have a very narrow range. So we can either extend our range or we can figure out how to keep the planet in that range. And we'll only do that if we work with her. But most humans, life as usual, they are doing the same old thing. So my question for you is, where are you in that? Are, do you think that your biome is responding? Is it getting enough input to be able to do that? Or are you staying in air-conditioned rooms so your body doesn't have to change? Are you working with the planet at all? Have you really started to engage with plants and animals and insects in a way that you understand how to keep them thriving? Because they're thriving will support your thriving? Or are you still on a career path trying to save money for the future? One third of the forests on the planet are gone. And half of that happened in the last 100 years. I'm gonna say that again. One third of the forests are gone. And half of that happened in the last 100 years. What's happening in the Amazon is huge. What's happening in the African Sahel is huge. These things have planetary impact. We feel so proud when we can fell trees this size, how strong and mighty we are. Now my question is, can we grow trees this size? That will be proof of how strong and mighty we are. People are doing some amazing things working with the planet. They are planting mangroves. They've cut down a lot of those mangroves and used the wood. And now we're learning we need to have them because they really protect the coast. They protect the coast in so many ways. They are habitat for wildlife. And they absorb the rage of the waters when they get really huge and protect the inland. Their leaves transpire water and therefore make it rain. So people have shifted 
and are now planting mangroves instead of cutting them down. We are rewilding rivers and bioregions. We're removing dams. We're understanding where water wants to flow and help it do that. And in little places and in big places. Joe Brewer is one of the big experts here. He's been he's playing with bioregions all across the, the continental United States, and it's really exciting to see the work he's done. People are enlivening soil because you can't have forests without good soil. If we get into planting whole forests, which is one of the things some people are doing all over the world in whatever environment they're in, you have to have a soil full of humus that will hold the water. That's what soil does. When soil holds the water, many things happen. You get aquifers filled, refilled, and you get springs that run all year because the, the land so slowly releases that water during times of drought. So you can keep that water running and flowing because the, the land will release it slowly if it's able to hold it. So enlivening soil is a huge thing to do and something that every one of you listening, every single person can contribute to. And then working to keep water on the land. If you live in cities like I do, you watch that water run down the streets and into the sewer. And we think, wow, we've taken care of it. We're not flooding. And that has proven not to be true. As you can see world over, we've got floods everywhere because it's too much water is what we're getting as we go through the, the drought and burn and flood cycles. So keeping that water on the land instead of going down the sewer is really what needs to happen. And there are some experts in that. Zach Weiss and Burke Lancaster are two that come to mind. Fantastic, very skilled artisans in figuring out how to use the landscape we have to keep the water we get so that we're more resilient when we don't get the water we need. And then planting whole forests. This is the Miyawaki method. I, um, the book is Mini Forest Revolution by Hannah Lewis. I highly recommend it. Discovering the original plants, planting them all in a day, and then nursing that forest for three years when it becomes self-sustaining is a very fast way of recreating what used to be there and what is resilient in that space. And they have proved to be more resilient in the changes because you have the whole ecosystem working together. So, and it can be small, they don't have to be huge, but it is amazing what one person can do. There are many stories coming out now of an individual person. So far, it's always a man because this is kind of men's work. It's heavy lifting, lots of heavy lifting. But men have gone out in, in various places and just planted and then nurtured what came up. And in so doing, have recreated forests, huge areas in a lifetime. So this is very doable. This is something that humans are already practicing and that we can do way more of. So a word on the biotic pump, because this is so crucial to what we're facing now and how we can address it. The biotic pump is how water flows around the world in the air. We have oceans, absolutely. We get evap evaporation from the oceans 
absolutely. It goes into clouds and it flows around the world. That's absolutely true. That is not the major source of rain, however. It's a contributor. The other major part of rain has to do with the trans evaporation from plants, from plants in forests. And when those forests evaporate water, it goes into clouds and it doesn't have to go that far, but it follows the wind cycles around the planet. And so forests in one area cause rain in another. We've not understood that before. We think everything happens here and it doesn't. It's an interconnected system. And the map on your screen is exactly how those rivers flow and where they actually provide water. It gives you a really good understanding of why we can have drought in one place for no apparent reason. And it's because we've cut down trees in another. And this is critical to understand. This is why forests are commons. There's something that everybody needs. It's not just for the place where they are. Forests make rain worldwide. The other picture on my screen right now is a lake. In the year 2000, and again in the year 2014. And it's gone from full and vibrant and very dark green to almost non-existent in 14 years. So when they're saying 2030, this is not a joke. Things are happening so fast. We cannot afford to wait. That's the point. We can't afford to wait. Even if you're not impacted now, by the time you're impacted, it is really hard to make the solution happen. If you're in a drought already, it's much harder to get water to a new forest. So plant now before the water has disappeared so that it is resilient and helps to keep it here. <laughs> if we can replant those forests, the forests will help that rain stay. So there are things we can do, but we have to do it now. So a third of the forests are gone and a half in the past hundred years. But one of the things we've done when we remediate the forest fires we've had in the past is that we're not planting forests, we're planting crops, mostly of pine trees that we can harvest for paper and wood and other things. And we plant them in rows and we plant them all the same tree in the same age because it makes it easier on us. We can go through with our machines and take them all down at the same time. That's not how nature works. We're planting crops. We're not planting forests. So just planting trees is not sufficient. We must plant forests. We need the diversity. Diversity is key to nature. Nothing is the same as something else. No two things are the same, whether they're humans or trees or snowflakes or insects. Everything is different.
we need to plant differences. Native Americans have known that for a very long time. So we're very fortunate to have a few examples of this. And in one of the Eastern Coast forests, the Native Americans have been managing it, I think, for 50 years. And they have discovered some interesting things. Given all the changes, they're undergoing the same kind of changes as the rest of us. But they're finding that the trees in those forests are much more climate adaptive. We plant the trees we like. And they're not necessarily climate adaptive. So we're finding that those forests are declining because the trees are not climate adaptive. The native forests are resistant to burning. That's not true of most of our forests. They're monoculture crops or they're trees we like and they're not designed for heat. The natives managed by burning. Of course, you should probably know by now, we stopped that many years ago and are discovering that's a problem. <laughs> so we're now trying to get back into that where we understand how to manage by burning to keep our forests more um, stable. But when they're monocropped, it's much harder to do. You need that variety to be able to withstand the burn. They're also finding that the native managed forests have a greater variety of trees and other plants than human managed forests because we don't plant for diversity. We plant for uniformity. We want everything the same so we don't have to deal with it. And the native forests have increased their capacity, have increased the amount of wood that's available to be harvested while they are being harvested. So they harvest in the winter when they're not destroying the rest of the forest to take the trees out. They select trees to be taken and leave other trees. So yes, it's more time consuming. Yes, it takes more energy to do it, but it's way more efficient in the long run. Working with nature is so different than making it convenient for humans and more productive and safer for humans too. It really helps us live when the planet is alive. When we kill the planet, it's not helping our survival at all. Earth can manage herself. She has managed herself for billions and billions of years. And she's doing just that. But she's always managed herself with the cooperation and contribution of every other living thing on the planet. So she's changing those circumstances and those things that can change and that can help her manage the new situation will be the things that stay here. The question is, will we be one of those species? We can help work with those changes by helping her rebalance if we can manage the biotic pump, if we can help her cool in natural ways, the ways she's used to doing, we can keep more of the life on this planet that we treasure, including our own. 
we have to partner her with her. We have to work with her. We cannot assume we can create a safe space for us and the planet be damned. That will not happen. But we have no time to lose. We have to work now because she is changing very fast. She's been very patient, actually, for quite a while, 100 years or more. And we've known about it. We've just ignored it. We've not understood our role or our purpose. And now I hope we can get it. So I'm asking, what can you do? What can you do about the soil around you? What can you do about the community around you and how it deals with the soil and the water that it deals with? So small towns or cities, how can you impact the choices that are being made at that level to support the soil health and the cleanliness of the water around you? Why would we wreck water we need to live? Why would we make it undrinkable? I, I can't fathom why that seems like a good idea. Yeah, we have to stop what we're doing until we can figure it out. Absolutely. But we can be, we're as creative as the rest of life on the planet. I've already shared with you some of the amazing things other life is doing. I mean, we think we're at the top of the heap. So certainly we can come up with more creative solutions than we have. We've been lazy all this time. So it's time to wipe our, pick ourselves up, wipe ourselves up, get back in the game in a very real way by being creative and inventive and cherishing what we have, working from our hearts to watch and enjoy life thriving around us again, building for us wherever we can. If we had hundreds of thousands of people out doing this in their own space. You don't have to travel half around half. You don't have to travel around the world and work in the Amazon to do this. And if you can, and you want to go to it, I think that's great. But where you live now, you can plant forests where you live now that are indigenous to your place by improving the water, making sure the soil is alive. These are things you can do, and you can help others around you do it also. So I'm asking you again, what can you do? If you're passionate about this, if this motivates you, if you really care for the planet, if you're really afraid of the changes we're, good, we're looking at, these are things that you can do to help mitigate the impact of all of that. So the time to act is now. Please get in touch. Let's work together. Bridge to partnership.com. Thanks for listening. I'm so appreciative of your joining me on this journey. To go deeper, check out the Coming Home Project community. The link is on the podcast webpage and on my own webpage, bridge2partnership.com. It's time to take action, become a regenerative leader. There's more information on the webpage and in the Coming Home Project community network. You can support my work through donations on my podcast page or by joining my Patreon page. I'm open to questions and messages, so please connect. 
let's be sure to leave your name so that I can reference you when I respond. Thanks so much for being here. It's the new mother nature taking over.